Today we're in Ford's Hotel at Filey, appropriate location to talk to Dr George Sheeran of Bradford University about Yorkshire Coast and its visitors. So George, the seaside holiday is so deeply ingrained in our popular culture, how do you put that into any sort of context? Is it a product of the Industrial Revolution or does it go a lot, lot further back than that? I think it's all of those things that you've said actually, uh, David. Of course, the first sorts of holidays by the seaside can't just be seen as holidays by the seaside as we know them today. We are talking about the development of leisure towns throughout the country, and that's inland as well, with people wandering about for the season. The season might consist of races and dances and so on. But an important component of that is health as well. The seaside and drinking spa water, for instance Bath, Tunbridge Wells, becomes very much associated with health and the health-giving properties of those medicinal waters. I think probably it is more or less true to say that Scarborough was the first seaside resort in that respect, since spa waters were allegedly discovered there in the early 17th century. Once you get after the Civil War, it certainly does begin to be developed, a spa near the beach. The spa then wasn't particularly well developed, perhaps, because as Celia finds that inveterate traveller uh, says in her diary for, I think it's uh, 1694, that she came to Scarborough and tasted the spa waters, but unfortunately the tide ran over them, making them rather brackish, as she said. But it purges pretty well. Well, we won't go into that. So here you've got the first, I think, um, uh, idea of a leisure class, that, which is A, moving around the country, going from places like Bath to places like York to places like Tunbridge Wells for the season, for enjoyment, for leisure. But Scarborough as well, both for health and the pleasure that the seaside might give you. Of course, this changes in the 19th century, as you said, David, by the, with the Industrial Revolution. Most holidays, of course, were taken only by the people that A, had the money to uh, spend on that, and B, had the leisure to spend on that as well. Most other people were working night and day to keep themselves uh, uh, body and soul together. But by the 19th century, things become, uh, I think historians like to say, more democratised. I'm not sure that's the right word, really. But certainly more people start coming along. Uh, and one of the big, big uh, motors of change there is the development of railways and cheap excursions. So works outings, perhaps, to the seaside. Eventually, by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, with bank holidays, cheap excursions, and people maybe being able to uh, take time off work to spend up to a week perhaps by the seaside. Not in the luxury that the aristocracy and elite families had known in the past, but nevertheless uh, able to take a break. So that's a, the overall view, if you like, of, of the, the, the development of seaside towns and, and seaside leisure. If I can just pull it back a, a bit perhaps to two things. One, where, where is the, um, the line between health and leisure? You talk about spa towns emerging, but it's not just about taking the cure, is it? It does seem that they build on top of that all sorts of rooms where you can gather and have meals and, and be seen, see and be seen. So where, where does it move from the doctor saying you should go take the waters at Filey or Scarborough to becoming a season and a place to be in visit? Yeah, it's a good question, that, because uh, you're right, again, when, and I'm not dismissing historians, but uh, the general view is that, oh, people come to the seaside for, for, for their health, and, and that, of course, is true. But uh, when you look at the journals, some of the letters that survived of 18th century visitors to places like Scarborough, for instance, you soon find that they're saying that, well, it's not just for health that people come here. Uh, the wonderfully named Earl of Verulam, for instance, in the um, uh, mid-18th century, some of his letters survive, and he's been to Scarborough and says he saw lots of people there who need not take the waters but come for the company, as he put it. I, I paraphrase that, but that's basically what he says. So you have actual testimony from the time. So, yes, some, not all, but some towns, villages on the coast, uh, which seem to be becoming fashionable, will develop facilities for... I'm going to call them elite families, because that comprises people just like aristocratic landed families, but it also comprises some of the big commercial and industrial families as well. 
and some of the professional families too, who may not be equal in wealth to people like uh, well-to-do industrialists or gentry, for instance, but have that sort of power over things like life and death and will charge a darn good fee for it, and, and, and so can be considered as part of that elite as well. Yeah, facilities can be developed for them, and you can think of things like assembly rooms being developed Ooh. for balls, dances generally, but also important uh, activities in terms of leisure, there, such as cards, for instance. You can find people going to uh, tea parties roundabout in, in, in lodgings that, and, and hotels don't really begin, I don't think, uh, really as hotels until perhaps the mid-19th century as far as the Yorkshire coast is concerned, but um, to, to lodgings uh, and other sorts of places, inns perhaps as well. But there's another side to that too, and that is we shouldn't think of it all as just sort of um, health or leather, enjoyment and dancing and boozing all day. There are also more intellectual pursuits, for instance. A very early example of that occurs in a very famous, um, I think it's a, a, a terrific piece of PR, it, it purports to be a letter from a gentleman in London to his friend, uh, written in 1733 concerning Scarborough. But if we believe that, Things like series of lectures, even by the early 18th century, have already emerged as a form of, of, of recreation, really. Uh, and that continues in a place like Scarborough. So we have the Rotunda Museum opening in the 1820s, a geological museum primarily, but also natural history and antiquities. And so it goes on. So there's various kinds of leisure. Very important there, I think, is racing, horse racing. And we find horse racing at most resorts, usually on the sands, at least until perhaps the mid-19th century, when greater regulation comes along and race courses are um, taken away from the sands and built in land and, and better regulated. Excellent example of that is red car, for instance. Racing on the sands there, eventually you get a race course where regular meets are held. So, yes, basically, all sorts of leisure is developed. The idea of health and health by the seaside changes from drinking spa waters if it's there, from bathing in the sea, not swimming note at first, mm. bathing, that's different, to swimming, which is a more energetic, life-enhancing, strength-giving activity, to, by the time you get to the end, to the, what, hmm, it's discovered in the 1830s, but becomes big by the 1860s in, in terms of popular culture, the discovery of ozone, and thinking that that is the big health-picking thing, so, you know, the bracing air of the seaside, the ozone, that's something that, that, that will, that will uh, do you good as well. That, plus a lot of other activities, and uh, it's a very relaxing time if you can afford them. And of course the sea, just coming to the sea, is something in itself, and, that, and the perceptions of the sea change. And, and that runs probably parallel with things like the late poets and people being less frightened of these environments like the mountains of the lake districts. I've actually written down a great quote from Charlotte Bronte when she went to Bridlington ah. in 1839 and she wrote, the idea of seeing the sea, of being near it, watching its changes by sunrise, sunset, moonlight and noonday, in calm, perhaps in storm, fills and satisfies my mind. So the excitement of just seeing the sea. We all come to the seaside now, but we can, so I think sometimes we forget, we've got to rewind and say that people actually didn't. It was a new thing. It was and, and it was Alain Coburn, the uh, French French historian, wrote wrote a, an interesting book about people's perceptions of the sea and the seaside. I tend to disagree a little with Coburn, because what he fails to do, uh, or fails to do sufficiently well, I think, is contextualise that, and and it needs to be, in contemporary philosophical discourse. Now that sounds rather highfalutin, but it is actually extremely important. I think historians in particular, although they know about this, have consistently ignored and, and failed to understand the significance of aesthetic debate from the 1760s. And, and it really is important. So to try to summarise this briefly, although it's, it's a debate which rumbled on for 60 years, uh, you get philosophers like Hutchison early in the 18th century, certainly Edmund Burke in the 1760s, particularly important, uh, inquiry into the, orig the, ideas, the origins of ideas about the beautiful and the sublime. He makes two aesthetic categories there, the beautiful, I think we know what that is, uh, and the sublime, which he says that this is the greatest emotion that the mind can bear. He says, you, man can't make this. It hinges on fear of the natural, really. So, great storms, vastness, darkness, these things are terrifying. That is the sublime. But it's the sublime that you can 
feel the danger of if you go to certain places, like if you stand and look at the sea at a safe distance, you can feel the danger of that and you can experience it. Along come other philosophers and develop that idea with a third category called the picturesque. So that when you go back and you look at the, uh, the travelling public's journals, when you look at novels of the day, when you look at newspaper reports and guides of the day, when they look, use terms like sublime and picturesque, they are not using them in the same way as we use them today. They mean something quite different. The sublime is an overwhelming feeling, which Charlotte Bronte expresses there. And the picturesque does not mean sort of, sort of nice little cuddly kittens by the fire or something like that in a cottage. She's thatched, of course, and has roses round the door. It means roughness, ruggedness, haphazardness, the scene as a painter would have it. it hence, picturesque. It's like, like a, 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 a painting. At the same time, you've got all these people coming to the seaside, the some artist colonies at places like Staves, Robin Hood's Bay, Colour Coats, who like to paint the picturesque yeah. elements of fishermen yes. going about their work. Yes. And so it's, it's like another level, another layer has been added to yes. how people consume the seaside. Yes, it, it is. I, I think it's very much that. Uh, if that philosophical uh, bit that I dipped my toe in there um, seems, as I say, oh, well, you, you know, you, you might say, well, how many people really knew about that? Actually, it pervades educated, and I do stress educated uh, conversation, which you can see from, again, letters and journals. You can find it throughout the literature of the day. Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, for instance, is full of references to the sublime and the picturesque. And she doesn't mean it, as many readers will take it, I think, nowadays, the words are how we, how we mean them. So it is uh, an aesthetic that educated people knew about and indulged in. You can take uh, Charlotte Bronte, like you said. There's also the poetess Anna Seawood, who says very similar things. And there's a number of other travellers who, when they first, for, for example, crossed the Cliff Bridge at Scarborough. Uh, now, the Cliff Bridge, of course, connects the Spa with St Nicholas Cliff. Um, I can't remember how many feet it is in the air. It's about 80 feet in the air, something like that. It's on some quite sturdy stone piers. But then this sort of filigree uh, ironwork which uh, carries you across the, this great ravine here. And the original flooring of it was simply boards with gaps between. So that uh, one or two travellers have written that it was dizzying to look down. It was terrifying, you know. But again, it's that an ocean, that appreciation of the sublime there. You know, now people like Burke and the other people that I mentioned there, Hutchison, and especially people like Payne Knight and Price, two other philosophers who were engaged in this debate, put that in an enlightened, rational framework. What you're starting to get, and, and this is you know, where the lakes and the mountains and things like that come in as well, of course, uh, by the time you get to the later 18th, early 19th century, is that individual response, an emotional response to those sorts of categories through nature, through lived experience. And that I consider to be the romantic there. And that's so kind of you've got you, you know you've got that rationality and moving into the romantic uh, appreciation of landscape, the sea. But it's, I suppose there's all sorts going on there. There's far too much to cover. God, you know, the sublime, being close to the God. It's, it's, it's uh, the sea is is something that's uncontrollable by man. Yes. And therefore, but at the same time, people are discovering fossils. It's challenging the mm. God part as well, if you like. But we can't, I don't think we can really go there, can we? No, we've not got to Darwin yet, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but also yeah. the museum places, such as yes. the Rotunda Museum. Yeah, they're, they're, they're intensely important, I think, yes. Mm. Um, and, and there are sort of, um, I don't want this to sound patronising, but there are sort of lesser uh, rational amusements as well uh, for uh, those who just wish to enjoy them. Things like the... the it's disappeared without trace now. The Camera Obscura, mm. which used to be situated on South Cliff in Scarborough, for instance, so you could go in there and get a completely different. Is that similar to the, the pinhole camera that's it's, at Edinburgh? It's exactly the same. Okay. Yeah, uh, where you can project an upside down image on the back wall or whatever. Um, you can use mirrors to do other things as well. But you know, even if these are lesser uh, wonders, where you go in and say, "Oh, isn't science wonderful?" You know. <laughs> um, nevertheless, it does show an interest and curiosity about the world, which you find at the seaside as well as the dancing uh, and the assemblies uh, and the cards and so on. Uh, the most interesting person in that respect, which uh, at whose um, uh, journal, and it's the most wonderful, wonderful set of journals, is that of Dorothy Richardson of North Byley in, in, near Bradford. These journals are now held. Uh, there's no printed copy. They were never published. Uh, somebody ought to come forward and publish them, but they're so good. They're held by Ryland's Library, University of Manchester. And she visits Bridlington in, 
I think it's 1801, 1802, stays there, and wishes to see the sublime effect of the cliffs at Flamborough. So she travels up in a, in a carriage with her friend in the lodgings that she's staying with, and her friend just doesn't want to do that, and she basically makes a lot of excuses, saying you'll never get the carriage up there. And they get as far as the village, have a cup of tea and turn back. Dorothy Richardson rather tartly puts in her journal that that's because I think she wanted to get back to her cards rather than see anything better, you know, <laughs> or words to that effect. But uh, a day or two later, she leaves her lodgings, gets her maid up with her, and at 4.30 in the morning is on Bridlington Pier to see the sunrise above the sea. I came back full of my, my head full of it, she says, but I could not rouse my other two companions who were more, more interested in tea and cards, you know. So you get that variety of, of, of interests there, the, the intensely romantic, scientific people. Dorothy Richardson was a very well-educated woman, but yet the people who came simply for the social intercourse and enjoyment. Now, we've talked quite a bit about people getting here, haven't we? We've mentioned that you've mentioned somebody travelling around in their car up Flamborough Way. We're sat in a pub, which was built, yes. a hotel rather, built around 1815, 20-ish. And the, the stagecoaches would call here. This was the port, yes. port of call. And 1824, I think, was when the start. And, but the, the, one of the things that I, th I thought was really interesting is between 1809, there were 60 weekly stagecoaches between London and Scarborough, mm. which makes you wonder where... There must have been private carriages coming here. Then you get the macadam age of cars, mm. which is improved things. But there must be another hull. There was a whole Scarborough coach. So before the railways, the coast was more accessible than perhaps we realise. Yeah, and the one thing you left out there too is that numbers of people could get a, a steamboat up from uh, yes. Hull to yeah, Scarborough, yeah. for example, uh, or Bridlington, and, and you know. So yes, it was. Roads are improving, and part of the reason for roads improving is yeah, of course it's turnpiking, but um, it's what goes along with that, and that's improvement in the mails as well, I think, yeah. because you need you know if you're going to get mails on time, if you have good communications like that. You need good roads. So that's part of it. But yeah, lots of people came. And the other important thing about the, the point you raised there, I think, as well, is that it does show you that unless you're part of that leisure class, unless, class, unless you're part of that elite, you haven't got the money to do that. All the time. Uh, all the, all, yeah, all the time, yeah. You can't afford to take a couple of weeks. Because when people came and stayed, they don't come for a day trip. Uh, it's too far. They don't come for a week. They, they come stay a month. And, and, and working people, uh, eat, whether you're talking about labourers or whether you're talking about people who are running a, a shop in York, they can't afford that time off. They haven't got that time. They haven't got the, the means to do that. Talking of rivers, boats and all that sort of thing, mm. just reminded me of uh, when I did my MA at Leeds uh, with John Walton, one of the real doings of uh, Seaside History, yeah. talked about people using the Leeds and Liverpool Canal to get to Blackpool. And they would get off at mm. the nearest point, I think Starry's Brick or somewhere like that, and mm. then got road transport for the for the last five miles. All those places like South End, Margate, that had traffic down the coast. But also one of the more interesting ones I came across um, is a chap who was a historian of Cleethorpes wrote about river traffic coming down from Gainsborough to go to Cleethorpes. Mm. So that was really mm. fascinating. So sometimes I think we forget about the multiplicity of ways that people use to get to the coast. But of course. The railways are the big change. Mm. They come here in the, I think it's the 1840s, down to Scarborough, Bridlington, and Filey's 1840s, 46. Does that represent the step change that we, we think it, it represents in, in regards to the results and the development? Yeah, I think it does. In terms of railways, I, 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 what interests me too is the speed at which it happens, really. First railway in Yorkshire, Leeds and Selby, 1834. By 1841, George Hudson is talking about putting in a line from York to Scarborough. It doesn't happen, like you say, till the mid-1840s. It takes some time. There's a lot of opposition within Scarborough itself. The focus of opposition is a pamphlet put forward by George Knowles, a civil engineer and architect who'd come to uh, settle in Scarborough. Settled in the house, which is now the gallery at Scarborough. What he says is, all the railway will do, if you have cheap trips, is bring a load of the working class, basically. He doesn't put it like that. He puts it in a far ruder way. And, you know, nobody wants them here. They don't want their company. They've nothing to spend. He's often portrayed as saying that in the um, histories of Scarborough that you, you, you read. And, and indeed, he did, he did say that. But what's left out is his other problem with it as well, and that is George Hudson. He thinks, and he turns out to be absolutely right here, that the railway company is a dodgy one. 
Uh, well, it, it was Hudson who was the dodgy one. The railway king, <laughs> yeah. of course. The rail- that yeah, to that's it, right. Yeah. Really, yeah, uh, the railway company actually w- was a reasonable sort of success. But that's the first stage of it. York to Scarborough. Then the line goes, again, under Hudson's um, uh, sort of patronage, so to speak, under Hudson's leadership, uh, then goes down from Scarborough to Hull. At first, these tend to bring in the middle class in greater numbers. By the time you get to the 1860s, day-trippers are coming. Trippers are the scourge of posh resorts. It's Scarborough, of course. But there's also, finally, a, a remarkably exclusive resort in the, in the 19th century that starts taking shape from the late 1830s through to the 1860s and then continues like most places do. But the original plan is to build houses for very exclusive sorts of uh, visitors. The Crescent, finally, which now kind of epitomises the way people think about the town, the first block is built in 1839, Mm. which is before the railway. Yes, which implies carriage trade, yes. Yeah, but did did they anticipate the railway, or would it have been built anyway? Is that that unknowable? It's unknowable, but the family that built it was the father, John Wilkes Unit, and his two sons, John and George. Uh, they come from Birmingham. Whoa, everybody says, how come a Birmingham... And he's, and he's a lawyer. How come a Birmingham lawyer comes up to file it? I think it's his friendship with a family in Birmingham who also owns a lot of land around, land around the locality as well and probably said to him, it's, it's a good place for development. Also, Unit, although a lawyer had developed large areas of, of what we think of as, as, as Birmingham now, Smedic, for instance. There's a property speculator. He's a property speculator and developer as well. Mm. The, the, one, the only local newspaper here, the Hull Packet, praised him as a spirited individual. Mm. I'll quote that one correctly this time. Scarborough Filey, but also Saltburn as well, I think. Um, Saltburn, very much the development of the Pease family, um, and some would say the uh, Stockton and Darlington Railway, which was, yeah, guess who controlled it, the Pease family, basically. Built almost along the lines of a model industrial village like Saltaire. It wasn't, it was by the sea and was meant to be a seaside resort. But goodness me, very strict controls there about who could do what, and who could build what and where people lived. Real social zoning and so on. Um, these were the posh resorts. Uh, West Clifford, so Whitby was built by George Hudson. Yeah, yes. The Railway King was behind that. So you can see these kind of out like the Crescent at Filey, South Clifford, uh, Scarborough, yes. West Cliff up at Whitby, and then the, the, yes. the things you're talking about up at Saltburn, yes. and also perhaps north of the pier at Bridlington. Are they all part of a similar kind of development across the coast, a social development, the railways, the people with time on their hands? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, I think the interesting thing uh, about them, putting my sort of urban historian's hat on now, is that they don't take place except with but with two, but with two exceptions, and that is Filey and Saltburn, to any plan. Um, there's no overall plan. There's no individual or committee or council that comes in and say, we're going to develop our town this way, and here's the plan, uh, like a new town, for instance. Now, that happens at Filey, and it happens at Saltburn by the sea. But it's rather little planned units which are being added to it, uh, often by building speculators, uh, building very good quality houses very often, actually. But yes, you're right in that sort of assumption. It fails sometimes. You can see Whitby, the Crescent's half built, isn't it? Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you know, so if you go up to Whitby, which is why I didn't mention it so far, uh, there have been plans to develop Whitby with railways and with what you know, amounts to really a new town on the top of Westcliff there, really from the late 1830s, but nobody was doing much about it and committees were falling out with each other and so on, until Hudson comes along and he drives it forward. Gets halfway through it, of course, and the Hudson Empire collapses, so that stops. When it resumes, it's when uh, Sir George Eliot, very important industrialist, buys out the North Eastern Railway and Hudson shares in all that lot and starts the whole scheme up again. But it never, it's never completed on the scale or, or to the elegance that uh, Hudson had planned. No, with the same architect. Hudson's architects have you know, gone by then. And I want to say by then, we're talking about the 1870s, really. Uh, and it's not completed under Eliot until perhaps the 1890s, or Eliot and Eliot's son, that is. The other place that fails miserably in that respect uh, is Withensy. Um, there are two or three big plans to develop Withensy. Plan, the plans which are still extant, you know, the drawings of, of how it will be developed. Really incredible stuff. Nothing happens. Or oh, Raven's Car, even the, the biggest ah, failure of the lot. That, that's wonderful, <laughs> yes. Tremendous uh, seat, well, probably, was it 300 feet above the above the beach and uh, overlooking Robin Hood's Bay. Um, you do wonder when you look at that whether that was kind of the... If we had a railway mania in this country, did we have a, a resort mania? Because it just didn't seem to stack to this day that... that 
the streets are still extended yeah. there. There's nothing being yeah. built. It's yeah. tremendous. It, it all, yeah, it all started very optimistically with good reports in the newspapers and so on. Um, I think two or three things went wrong. Firstly, you have a syndicate of businessmen who are described in, in prospectuses and things like this as men of experience. Actually, you can track down who they were because it's great ton of documentation of this in the uh, North uh, Yorkshire County Record Office. Uh, a lot of the stuff has survived. And when you look at them, <laughs> there's a couple of MPs, there's a couple of, uh, th there's, an, there's an athlete who becomes an Olympic, Olympic athlete in the end. There's uh, somebody who pursues uh, an academic life. So you, you've got about half a dozen people who have very little to do with the world of business. Although they're described as being successful developers, they're not actually. They're pursuing political careers, academic careers, sporting careers. It's left in the hands of agents and auctioneers. Secondly, there's the site. The beach is appalling there. In fact, there almost isn't one, you know, when you look down from that cliff. And then it is a hell of a drop from the cliff to get to the beach. The only person who could have got there is the Olympic athlete, probably. I, th I think it probably is, yeah, but he was, he, he was fencing, actually. Oh, so, well. <laughs> so he probably couldn't have got there either. And then when you look behind you, you've got the North York Moors. So there's that. And then I think the third thing is that because they were kind of absent developers or absentee developers, the stuff that they said they'd do doesn't get done, and it doesn't get done on time. Ah, yes, you say, that's builders for you. But it, it, it's bad with them, you know. We'll, we'll open this place, and you know, there's a big area of clay suitable for making bricks. We'll make all the bricks. They don't get done. Uh, we'll lay all the drains. Well, you eventually get done. The streets do eventually get laid out, but not on time. And what I think the directors of that firm didn't reckon on was that they were dealing with canny West Riding folk who would cut their teeth in the sort of textile, iron and steel engineering businesses and they were very inquisitive and they wanted to know what was going on for their investment and in the end loads and loads of plots were left unsold. The funny thing is there, the one thing that is still going to till this day is the Ravenhall Hotel. Mm, it's a very grand hotel. It was... The small, it, it looks as though it's in two halves when you go, and it's because it is. You've got an 1830s house, um, it becomes eventually uh, owned by a, a, an important London auctioneer called Hammond. And, and, and that, um, that house was then added to by a, a Scarborough architect called Tugwell. Uh, and the bigger part of it was built, I think, 1890s by Tugwell. The Francis Frith collection of um, photographs has a wonderful picture of it. And you can see very clearly the two halves of it. It's altered somewhat today with bars being built round it and bits being projected out of it and so on. But uh, nevertheless, it survived <laughs> when the rest of the layout didn't. An awful lot of those large hotels, of course. Uh, the Zealand at Solburn is now apartments. The old spa at Filey is now apartments. Mm. So these large hotels that were built, when was their heyday? Was it because they, they appear now to have dropped off? When was it? Was it the 1870s, 80s, 90s? Is that possible to pin down? I think the thing about big hotels, because there was always inns, lodging houses, uh, of, of varying degrees of quality, some pretty poor, but when one reads accounts, some very, very good indeed. There were also the beginnings of hotels as we'd recognise them today by the 1830s, 1840s. One of the first was at Hornsey, the Marine Hotel, built around 1840, and it changes and enlarges over the years. And uh, it's burnt to the ground almost in, I think it was the 1870s, I might have got that date a little wrong, but then it's rebuilt towards the end of the 19th century into the structure we have now, which is nothing like what it was. The heyday probably is from the mid-19th to the late 19th century. And various hotel groups come to, uh, various hotels come together in the form of, of big hotel-owning groups. The Hammond uh, group, for instance, owned by the 1890s, I think it was, a number of hotels along the Yorkshire coast, uh, including one here in, in Filey, the, the Crescent Hotel. Those hotels were always big enterprises, lots of staff, heating, good quality of, of furnishings and accommodation and so on. And they, they cost a fortune to keep going. And many of them, unless you were catering for clients that really wanted to pay high prices, did not make a wonderful profit. Shareholders expected dividends, which in the main they got. But in the end, a group like Hammonds, for instance, goes bankrupt. Their hotels are put up for sale at auction. I can't remember the exact date, but in the 1890s. Again, West Yorkshire Archive Service has got the catalogue of their sale. It's a catalogue of hotels along the coast. Mm. You know, you, you can't believe that this many hotels are going up for sale all at once. So what, why are they going up for sale? Is it because the 
higher class visitors have, have gone elsewhere, they've gone to the south of France or Switzerland, or is, is, that, is it as simple as that? That is certainly a factor in it, I think. The other thing about it too is that it's only in, I think, the most fashionable resorts, and there all eyes turn to uh, Scarborough, mm. that those hotels keep going. So the Grand Hotel in Scarborough, for instance, is still, still an hotel yeah. today. The Grand, the biggest hotel in England, uh, it's often said locally it was the biggest hotel in Europe, it wasn't. Local myth, I'm afraid, that. Biggest hotel in Europe was the Grand in Paris. Scarborough's Grand had 350 rooms, the one in Paris had 800 so it's, it's not, it's not close, a bit it? more of it. <laughs> it's, it's double, you know. I think what you can say about the Grand Hotel and the great Hull Leeds architect, Broderick, Broderick himself was very much um, influenced by uh, French, uh, contemporary French architectural design and the rebuilding of Paris in the, in the 1850s. It's cut as a style which is usually referred to by historians as Second Empire. And he, he rebuilds, he recasts uh, what was a, a set of lodging houses and a little hotel on that site uh, on North Cliff there uh, in the 1860s as a grand Parisian hotel, basically. There's a lot of myth talked about that. Oh, it's an allegory of time, people say, you know. 12 floors, 365 rooms and four domes. It's not. And shaped in a V for Victoria. Well, it's not. He had a wedge-shaped site to deal with, so what do you expect? And uh, you count stories between basement and attic, and you've got seven. All publications of the opening of the Grand agree that there are 350 rooms and, and so on. Yes, there are four domes. But it, it is, and it survives in the 19th century, and it has this, this incredibly good reputation because... I think, it's very difficult to get at this, but I think it's going in for gastronomy as well as a very good quality of service and well-fitted up rooms. So they have a French manager, Augustus Fricoeur. He's actually born in this country of, of French parents, but he goes off to Paris and manages the Hotel Mirabeau. In, in Paris, is lured back by the eventual the company who eventually completed the Grand Hotel to manage it. And again, the press reports of the day say Monsieur Fricoeur supervised the fitting up of the kitchens and employed so and such and such a firm for the fitting up of the English department and such and such a firm of Paris for fitting up the French department of the kitchens. So you look at it and you use the census if you can. The trouble with the census is it's always taken before the season, really, in either the end of March or beginning of April, uh, so you don't get the full flavour of it. But you can see that there there are French waiters, German waiters, uh, one or two Italians working there, same in the kitchens, French chefs. Partly, I think, because you are getting some international visitors, so they, they speak the language. Partly because I think it adds that touch of continental yeah, flair yeah, to yeah, it yeah, as well. Exotic, you know. yeah. That's right, yeah. yes. And there are one or two descriptions of the food that I've come across. It doesn't please everybody. There's a poet, uh, for instance, late in the 19th century, Percy Crompton, who writes a guidebook. It's a tour of the highlands and, and the north coast, and Scarborough's included in that. And he goes in there and he said, I sat down at the Grand to dinner à la Française and enjoyed it. All I say I enjoyed it is any Englishman could enjoy this sort of food. <laughs> It's covered in sauce this and sauce that a la Francais. Can't people understand that in England we like plain food, you know? <laughs> it's a right little, almost a Brexit sort of rant, you know? <laughs> I've come um, across a fellow called Zenon Vantini, a Corsican running the uh, uh, North Euston Hotel in Fleetwood. Allegedly a valet to Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. Well, this is what they're saying, all the, all the, uh, yes. the publicity for the hotel. And it strikes me they tend to use that um, idea of Frenchness, exoticism, to yes. attract visitors and to say that, well, of course, it's a, this is a high-class establishment. We've got a Frenchman running it, or we've got yes. a French message. Yes. yes, it's important, that, actually, because, um, again, this is an area that historians haven't looked at much. Uh, there's some historical sociologists have, and a more recent book by John Burnett, the historian, uh, has as well. Uh, and that is what's happening to food in Britain. And, and historians like this, uh, and sociologists like that, have uncovered that there's, there's a whole literature there about how awful uh, the hotels are and the standard of catering in, in the first half of the 19th century. There's one wonderful book called uh, The English Hotel Nuisance by a man called Albert Smith. What he means by that is it's not these hotels are springing up and they're all sort of lardy da. He means the opposite, actually. He means you pay a heck of a lot when you go into a, an hotel and all you can get is a menu that can, you know, you can usually either have a, a broiled chicken, a fried sole or a chop or a steak and that's it. And he said, you know, why aren't the standards better given what we're giving? But he said, this will all be served up. How does he, how does he call them? With disdainful waiters who are a race apart, as he puts it, and you'll be charging an arm and a leg for it. 
Well, there's a change coming about, and I think that idea that we've input, um, and, and, and yeah, and I should say, Smith compares this with the treatment he gets on the continent, which is, is cheaper and, and far superior. And I think there's, there's a change coming about there that well-travelled people, who you mentioned before, are bringing those sorts of ideas back. Uh, you are getting canny hoteliers, or groups of people, boards of directors running hotels, who are putting in people from the continent who, who, who know how to treat guests, who know how to provide a good standard of food, comfort. And, and this is changing the hotel scene, probably from the 1840s. We've mentioned continental Europe, so I don't think we can avoid the First World War, which comes along in 1914, mm. and Scarborough gets bombarded in Ooh. December mm. 1914. Is it a convenient place to say that this is the big change at the British seaside, the, the democratisation across Holland's repair in 1938 and all that sort of thing? Are the wars too convenient, or are they actual big changing points in our society and, and, and the holiday-making landscape? They are, and... There is a change occurring around that time. One, I think one has to be careful about sort of piecing the two together and saying one's the result of another. Changes are already occurring. Uh, again, as you say, it starts at the top of society. Even by the 1850s, aristocracy, and I'm not thinking of the Grand Tour, I'm thinking of holidays here, aristocracy and some industrial and commercial families are going abroad to holiday. Part of the reason why more are going abroad is because of, again, the development of the railways on the continent. Before, how did you get from, uh, say, Dover or other parts of France to other parts of France? You got in a, a contraption called a diligence. And this is a great big farm cart, really, basically, plodded along by two big cart horses over a load of bumpy roads and so on. Well, that, OK, that, that, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But it goes very, very slowly, is uncomfortable, it's not too good. The railways change all that. So you're getting, again, those moneyed and leisured people going to the continent and beyond by the 1850s and after. It comes as a surprise, for instance, to, to read that even by the 1860s, the Bell family of, of Middle, the Middlesbrough Teesside area, very wealthy, very influential, very successful industrialists, iron, steel, chemicals, collieries. I've got a house in Morocco at that date, yeah. Villa Mustafa. And in fact, uh, ooh, which one is it? I think it's Hugh Bell. I think I might have that wrong. It's one of the Bells. Actually dies there. Other people have bought houses in the... Uh, and I mean, you know, again, I'm thinking of a, a really well-to-do entrepreneurs and one or two aristocracy. We've got houses in the south of France. Henry Isaac Butterfield of uh, Keithley, fame, Cliff Castle. Uh, that was his primary residence. Butterfield had a house in Nice, for instance. People are already making uh, journeys abroad. France, the Mediterranean... Switzerland, Switzerland uh, as a holiday destination uh, is beginning to burgeon in the uh, second half of the 19th century. Uh, of course, where is Sherlock Holmes meet his death? Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland. And it's a symptom of you know what was going on during the day, I think. Mediterranean countries, but also Morocco and going further afield, Egypt. You know, you're going to the other side of the Mediterranean because transport's improving. And people, I think, are seeking in greater numbers, money people, a retreat to other places which are less thronged by English tourists uh, and certainly by some of the trippers and others who are coming, uh, other members of the working class who are coming for more riotous, longer stays at the seaside. <laughs> and so they don't, they're not looking at that scene, so to speak, anymore. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, just a combination of events that are happening, I think. Of course, the war comes along and um, that does a couple of things, I think. From after the war, uh, places like Scarborough, Bridlington, uh, Saltburn, Hornsey, Withensee well before it, Withensee was very much a working class seaside resort thing from the Was from it a whole day trip resort perhaps? Very much so, because very much so, yes. Yeah, uh, more people, uh, and again you can tell this from railway ticket sales where they exist, um, or where they survived, uh, more people go to Withensee on a bank holiday uh, from Hull than to any than to all of the other destinations along the Yorkshire coast put together. You get yeah. the same thing with New Brighton and Liverpool, of course. This is, this is but that's by boat, yeah. well, obviously, but well, yeah. later by train. Yeah. But. Yeah. but what's happening after the war, you know, and, and, and there's the great thing, is, is that people are now, or, or not, let me rephrase that, uh, a, a new way of structuring holiday making is coming into being. And of course, the big figure there, if you get well after the war, is Billy Butlin, you know. Who ironically builds the last great villa of Filey. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And it's quite interesting, that one. And, and I do take that as a sort of, you know, real turning point, really important case study, because Filey sort of holds out a long time. Uh, in the 1890s, is a big new development plan for Filey, but the developers are careful. It never takes place, uh, incidentally. The developers are careful to say that the tripper must be discouraged. You know, it's, you know, in other words, this is an exclusive place, mate. We're not having that lot here. We're going to discourage them. And it holds out into the war years. Just after the war years, it's still regarded as rather exclusive. Beginning of the 20th century, in what, in the 1910s, you've got two royal visits. Remarkable. But then along comes Billy Butlin just before the war and puts in this plan for a massive holiday camp. Just, just what, about a mile, mile and a half out of the centre. Mm. And the council are horrified. It'll lower the tone of the place, they say. Um, and refuse planning permission. Eventually, Butlin gets his way and he opens the camp. Well, he doesn't open it because the war breaks out and the Ministry of War takes it <laughs> and, 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 and takes it over for the rest of the war and just after. Uh, but just after the war, then it opens as, as, as a big holiday camp. And right the way along the coast, it's changed forever. A good commentator on what's happening in that process is, is uh, Osbert Sitwell, actually. Uh, and particularly in two works. One is before the bombardment at a, at a holiday resort on the coast called Newborough, which is a thinly disguised Scarborough, very thinly disguised, you know, every person in it, every building in it, you know where it is. And it talks about it there as kind of the end of a whole era there. In, and before the bombardment, he's talking about 1910 to 14, kind of those years. His characters are living there then. Uh, and then it ends with the whole place being uh, bombed by a couple of uh, German ships, of course, uh, mm. as you say, in December 1914. That one. And also then in poems that he wrote in the 1950s as well, which again, I, what's it called? Rack at Tide's End, I think. Um, or is it Tide at Rack's End? I'm not quite sure <laughs> of the one. Uh, it, it's a book that nobody ever reads now but it paints quite an interesting picture of and he's really thinking back to before the first war even though he's written in, I think it's the 40s or 50s to and paints again it's a thinly disguised Scarborough uh, painting it as a place of retired generals and old maiden aunts and people like this and, and they're not of the modern world anymore the place is going down it's closing it's finishing I've, I've found a really interesting letter in the Filey News I think it is from about the 19th 30s, 40s, of a retired colonel. Yes. And, and he complains about um, children running around on the Crescent Gardens firing um, bows and arrows playing cowboys and Indians, which is probably another reflection of the change um, with the movies coming and, and, and more Americana again. And, it, and he sees this as an invasion. It, show, it illustrates the rot of the town. And actually, the, um, the, the editor's quite rude in his reply and uh, basically says, see you later. Yes, yes, and, and I think there's a lot of correspondence in newspapers like that. The Whitby Gazette's good for that because it's ages and ages and ages before they build the rather exclusive gardens on Westcliff, and, and it's, it's towards the end of the 19th century. That there's an, it, well, it's, it's, not a, it's not a letter, actually, it's an editorial, who say that it's about time Whitby got these gardens, that they were opened as an entrance charge, to keep out, as they put it, quote, the great unwashed. Our visitors don't like being jostled by them. As we've just alluded to, you get Billy Butlins coming along, yes. you've got the, the development of um, beach bungalows, self-filled bungalows, which is kind of an escape from the constraints of the old Victorian resorts, getting away from the, the landlady and uh, the times where you get thrown out until four o'clock at night and you're not allowed back in. And it's the fresh air and, and new, the fitness regimes. It's kind of fitting with... With Butlins as well, the way they run the red coats, and the, and then of course the caravan sites come along, the movable dwellings, Primrose Valley uh, next door to Friday, which was uh, caused a massive uh, argument on the council because essentially what you get is a new town built. Yeah, still does, still does, <laughs> I mean, so it's a complete change. But does that also challenge the way we think about the modern seaside? That people think that once the, once the package holders come along, that's it. Mm. But at the same time, you've got all these. Holiday sites such as Primrose Valley and Reeton Sands or Reeton Gap, as it used to be known, developing. So the seaside changes. It seems to, to me, I'm perhaps making the argument, that it balances away from the towns. It becomes more in individualistic, if you like. Yes, I think it does. I think it's very much like that. Um, uh, it is very different these days. Um, it's not just the day trippers. It's not just the people who come to stay for a week in great droves. It's not 
just riotous behaviour, which I think at times you still get, actually. It's not just every sort of uh, square inch of the beach being taken up by, uh, by trippers and, and then it quietens down again. That's, that's changed, and, and the way we consume the seaside has changed in, in the manner of ways that you've just said here. One thing I think which is steady right the way through it is this sense of the seaside as the other. Um, you can go there and you can be somebody else and you can behave differently because you're on holiday and you can almost take on a different identity maybe and again there's lots of and, and historians have, have written about uh, lots of evidence from people's letters and again journals and, and pieces in the mass observational thing at and Blackpool, then, and, yeah, yeah yeah indeed yeah. yeah where people will have a special set of clothes to go to the seaside or, or will you know uh, be called a different name almost at the seaside or will do this or that at the seaside uh, and I think that is that is definitely happening and funnily enough, it is happening right from the beginning of the 19th century. And I do mean 19th there, not a slip of the tongue. Uh, and you can see it in one or two letters. The Butler family of Kirkstall in Leeds were big iron founders. They have been since, I'm not sure when they started the iron business, but it's 18th century. They run right the way through the 19th century. They're a very important firm, uh, Butlers of Kirkstall. And one of the family, a young member of the family, goes off and writes, writes a letter to, to a friend of his, which, which has survived. And, and there's a big chunk of his correspondence that was published in the uh, 1930s, I think, by other members of the family. And he goes to Scarborough and he writes back to his friend, uh, I can't believe it. I'm staying here surrounded by girls. I love girls. I'd do anything for them. You know, and I won't tell you what the rest of the letter says, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's, it's quite surprising. He would never dare do that when he was at home. You know, in, in respectable society. But he goes to Scarborough and, and there he stays. I can't remember, I didn't say where he's staying actually, he just refers to his lodgings. Uh, but there he's surrounded by girls. You know, and, and it's great. I can, you know, I can go out with the girls, I can have fun with the girls, I can flirt, you know. Uh, and it's probably one of the two other things going on as well. But, but um, uh, it's that sense of, of that, you know, you can come somewhere where maybe you're not known. Maybe. Historians have argued that. I don't agree with that bit, actually. Well, but if you go, go to a place used to where you go at the same time, didn't they? You That's get, right. You yes. get the wake sweeps yes. where the entire town would yes, be. Yes. Somewhere like Bradford had decamped yes. to Morecambe for a fortnight. Yeah, and that's that. And I'm thinking of elite society as mm. well, where you go there to be seen and to be known, you know. But it is a place where I think, you know, that freedom. Escapism, relax. It's a less formal atmosphere in, in, in some ways, uh, but one shouldn't overdo that either. But, but the evidence is there to suggest, you know, that. that this is a place where you can go and be somewhere else, someone else for a, for a week, for two weeks, for two months. And and, and just to kind of round all this off yeah. is that it's interesting to me that places like we're sat in Filey are still the social tone or the self-image is probably a better phrase mm. of the town is still set by the dare I call it quiet classicism yeah. of the Crescent. Yeah, Scarborough once you cross that bridge into Southcliffe, it feels different. Perhaps you want it to mm. feel different. So the social tones of the, of, of the Yorkshire coast towns are still kind of set by their Victorian, Victorian builders. Would you, would you agree I, with I that? I completely and utterly agree, actually, with that. Yeah. I, I mean, with one or two modifications. Uh, the, in the 19th century, for instance, Scarborough was known for its crowds of very fashionable younger and older women and men. People, th there are various articles in, in magazines and newspapers ranging from the Times to a even a building journal like The Builder who talk about Scarborough as a place which is the scene of fashion, you know. Whereas Filey, on the other hand, uh, is a place where you would go to for a quiet sojourn by the, by the, by, by the sea for a, for a few weeks or a few months. And you're not going to be troubled by that. You don't have to compete with that. And, and there's an architecture built, I think, which, which reflects that uh, and which um, accommodates that. And it's, and it's there still. Uh, it's there still, like you say. I think it's particularly evident in Filey, uh, more so than Scarborough, where in Scarborough, if you look at the South Cliff uh, and the North Cliff, which is often forgotten, but that was an important part of the development. And the cricket um, ground over there. And the cricket ground, yeah, exactly. It's very so important. You, yeah, and very important, you know, in terms of, of people that went there. So, so Lord Lons, Lord's Lons, the Lord's Lonsborough and Derwent, for instance, uh, are as patrons of the cricket festival and go there on the, during the, uh, while the cricket festival is being played, uh, together with people like the Salts of Bradford and so on. On the North Cliff in the 1850s, believe it or not, it's, it's, it's a favoured, uh, the, the Queen's Hotel, which doesn't exist anymore there, is a favoured residence of, of half the French royal family. You know, you can't, you can't believe them coming from Paris to, to the, the North Cliff in Scarborough, but they do. But that grandness has gone.
those grand houses that went with it have largely been turned, I think, into um, apartments and so on. Uh, and some of them of a less than uh, uh, pleasant nature. And but they part- survived. They survived, uh, they survived yes, and, and parts of the South Cliff are the same. I don't think that's evident in Filey amongst that sort of grander architecture of the Crescent, for instance. Indeed, uh, but I think just to finish on, the, the, the idea that if you think of places in your mind's eye, the Crescent at Filey kind of represents, mm. and the Bay, of course, represents Filey. At Scarborough, you might, in your mind's eye, see the castle and the, and the mm. bay, and the South Bay in particular. What a Whitby, because Whitby's got all these different layers going on, because hey, if I think of Whitby, I think of the, the Whalebone Arch, the, the Abbey, but I also think of Dracula, I think of all sorts yeah. of literary um, re- references, of course, and and it's a kind of a romantic place. A bit, it's, it feels different to the rest of the... It's not the bucket and sand... No, not at all, is it? Of no. Scarborough, Filey and Bridge. Yes, these days, yeah. yeah. These days, the, the, the thing that struck me about Whitby when, when I visited it, in recent times, I mean, is that you, you can, I might be wrong about this, but it seemed to me that you kind of get three classes, or not classes, but three different types uh, of visitor there. First of all, you've got the people that come for a week's holiday and, and you know, want to see the sights and, and do just kind of ordinary families and so on. Secondly, you've got the Goths who come there because yes. of the Dracula connection. And then you've got a load of walkers who, who are doing the, the Cleveland Way or whatever, you know. Uh, and it makes a curious social mix in that respect. And you've got the drinkers from Middlesbrough come on oh, Saturday and oh, Sunday. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. you've got that too, yes. Uh, and you've got the older port of, 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 uh, of Whitby as well. And you've got the Abbey, of course. But then you've got the remains of that uh, West Cliff development. And you've got that big hotel up the end, uh, the Metropole, you know, which everybody says, ooh, look at that, isn't it funny? You know, and I've never met that's anybody. the one with the four towers. That's the one. I've never met anybody in, in Whitby uh, or from Whitby or goes to Whitby that likes that, you know. Yet in its day, it was an extremely um, prestigious building designed by Charlie and Conan, uh, uh, an architectural firm of Leeds. In fact, they designed the Metropole Hotel in Leeds. Their uh, chairman of that Metropole Hotel, and I think the other one of the directors, uh, was a Leeds entrepreneur who first introduced electric lighting. Into, had an electric company in Leeds. So you find that both Metropole Hotels are, guess what, lit by electricity. Mm. And then Whitby, from being... Um, it, it, it's not a sort of reluctant resort, you know. It, it's a resort which quite a lot of upper-middle-class people, literary people too. George Eliot visits Whitby, for instance. Ambassadors, people like this. But it it really goes up market, you know, in the later 19th century. So you've got visiting Maharajas at the Metropole Hotel, taking over a whole floor, believe it or not, who's... (laughs) <laughs> who are friendly with the royal family and so on, you know. Um, so so it's, it's a curious place, Whitby. This is not, as you so rightly say, the traditional bucket and spade on the sands uh, holiday. Not in the past. And, and even today, it's, it's rather different. It is different. I, yeah. think, I think partly that's explained why Whitby is still booming, where the rest of the coast is possibly a mixed picture. Um, we haven't really yeah. time to get into things like... I mean, we haven't mentioned people retiring to the coast. Oh, no, coming, yeah, that's right. And then reliving their memories and all that, but perhaps another time. But anyway, yeah. George, that's been absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, we've ranged through all manner of subjects, decades, and, and also uh, many towns from Withensteel, right up to the T's and Saltburn. So thank you for your time, George. I hope that people enjoy it. Yeah, it's a pleasure.